Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. The scripture reading is from the book of John, chapter 11, verses 17 through 27. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they will they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die do you believe this yes lord she replied i believe that you are the messiah the son of god who has come into the world the word of the lord Well, it is good to see everyone enjoyed uh, some extended time away at a covenant conference, actually a couple of conferences that I attended in Chicago. I had to come back to Alaska to warm up, <laughs> okay? And uh, being gone for nearly two weeks, uh, just the amount of sunlight, it's just amazing. Are you enjoying that? Man, I certainly am. It's like five minutes a day, and I was reminded, just wait till we get to March, uh, these are these are great days uh, in Alaska. I want to begin by asking you a question. <clears throat> and Kim, I think I have what you have. Um, have you ever been disappointed with God? Have you ever been disappointed with God? Perhaps. You're disappointed with God right now. Or as I ask that question, you're taken back to a, a place in your life when you'd always heard God is seldom early but always on time, and yet it seemed like he was late. And I know for me, uh, when I think back, and there have been some times be really candid when I've been disappointed with God. It's because he hasn't responded to my prayers in the way I, I thought he should. He didn't deliver the way I wanted him to in the time I wanted him to deliver. Uh, the outcome of 
what I had hoped for uh, was much different than what I had expected or uh, what I had brought to him. Disappointment with God. And yet it's not so much the disappointment. Um, it's what we do when that disappointment comes that, that really determines um, our relationship with him and, and how, we, um, how we do in those times. Um, Rick Warren, the author of The Purpose Driven Life and then The Purpose Driven Church, says this, I've shared with you many times. He says, you were created by God for God. And until you understand that, nothing else in life makes sense. Okay, Nothing else in life makes sense. And uh, I think sometimes that, that crossroads of disappointment comes when, when I think that I was created by God and, and God created me for my purposes. And that ultimately, uh, his desire is to make sure that I get what I want, when I want it, the way I want it, how I want it. And yet, it's that thinking that ultimately leads um, to my disappointment. And, and so really what it comes down to is what is our soul expectation? Uh, soul, S-O-U-L. What's our soul expectation? Uh, what is it in the deepest part <clears throat> of our soul, of our, of our innermost being? What is it that we actually expect from God? And is it in alignment? Are those expectations in alignment with what God has revealed about himself, about what God has promised us in his word? Because if I'm out of alignment, then I'm setting myself up for disappointment. Does that make sense? And so again and again and again, I have to come back to what does God say about himself? What does God reveal to us in his word? What has God revealed to us in and through the life and the ministry of his son, Jesus Christ? And, and as we become more and more familiar, more and more anchored in, in his word and in his promises, uh, then we can realign ourselves. And those times of disappointment, although disappointing, um, take on a different meaning and purpose in our life. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> it's been at times when I've been most disappointed with God, times of just deep, deep sorrow. There's some times when there's just been just a sense of hopelessness. Um, not so much now, but earlier on in my life and my faith journey. Um, it's what I did when I was disappointed, who I ran to. You see, we can be disappointed with God, but, but still run to him in our disappointment, and that's what we need to do. And if you're disappointed today and you're struggling with disappointment, if God hasn't delivered or, or your life isn't turning out or your prayers aren't being answered the way you would expect them to be or should be, um, I encourage you to, to run to God. It feels counterintuitive, right? Because sometimes the urge is, or the temptation is, to run away from him. And in those times of disappointment, um, to run to pseudo-gods, 
It could be to run and involve ourselves deeper in our work. Or it can be to a chemical, whether it be alcohol or a drug of some kind. Uh, It can be to uh, a sexual addiction or pornography. Uh, It can be to um, something that on the outside appears to be great. It could be, I'm just going to hunt more. I'm going to fish more. I'm, I'm going to find a way to escape this disappointment and pain. But rather than running towards God, I'm going to find or try to find relief somewhere else. Let me tell you something. There's no relief to be found there. And so today, as we begin to look at the scriptures, if we look at another I am of Jesus, we're going to look um, at a family, in particular, um, two sisters, but then those that are, are their friends and associates who are mourning a, a loss in their life. And we're going to find and see a profound disappointment. And they're going to express that to the Lord. And yet the thing I want you to see as we go through this together is that even in their disappointment, who it is, what it is, they're running to for their ultimate source of comfort and strength and relief and hope. In John chapter 11 we are going to read about Jesus um, raising Lazarus from the dead. But what we're really going to see here is Jesus resurrecting hope. Jesus resurrecting hope through this act of raising Lazarus. And I want you to see that, and I want you to know that that's your hope as well. That if you're disappointed, if you're struggling, if you're hurting, if you're, you don't know which way to run, you're at that crossroads, am I going to run towards God? Am I going to run away from God to find relief, to find comfort? My prayer is today that you would follow the example of those that we're going to see in Scripture and that you would run to the feet of Jesus, even in your disappointment. Because when we do that, it's then that the depth of our relationship, our sense of loving and being loved by God, really can be deepened. We can grow and be strengthened. I want to just go back to that uh, Heidelberg Catechism. Can I do that? I want to start with this. Can we get back to that slide? There it is. Um, This comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, 1563. Okay? And in the Catechism, there's a series of questions and then responses. And so the person going through the Catechism would be asked the question, and then they would memorize the response. Okay? And... And I want to start with this before I really get in and kind of walk you through our passage today. Because what you're going to see is the reality of this confession lived out in the lives of those we're going to meet and journey with uh, this morning in Scripture. So I want to read this. It says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort? 
comfort in life and in death. Now, this question has everything to do with that soul, S-O-U-L, expectation. I'm asking you about this morning. What is it that we can expect ultimately in life and in death from God? And here's the answer. That I belong body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil, that he protects me so well that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. It took me easily a third of my life, maybe more, two-thirds of my life, before I was really able to grasp what that means and hold on to it in all the situations that I've encountered in my life and that that would become my sole expectation because that's based on the promise of God's word. It's so important to me that I have it in the back of my Bible. And I read it over and over and over again, especially in times when I'm disappointed or I'm hurting or I'm struggling. It just reminds me of who I'm to run to and what he's promised me. Okay? So, I want you to look for this reality in what we're going to see in the scripture this morning as we journey with Martha and Mary to the feet of Jesus. Let's open our Bibles up to John chapter 11. And I want to start in the beginning of chapter 11, beginning in verse 3. Now, leading up to this time, it tells us there was a man named Lazarus. He was sick. He was from Bethany, a village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, this village is about a mile and three quarters away from Jerusalem. Okay, that's going to be important. And this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. John is alluding to this because in the Christian tradition, by the time John had written his gospel, people were very familiar with the story of Mary. And how she worshiped the Lord and poured perfume out upon him. And so he's saying, yeah, this is the same Mary, in case you're wondering, to those who are reading this. And then it begins here now in verse 3, and this is what I want you to see. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. This is a prayer. This is them going to, to Jesus, their loved one. Uh, Lazarus, their brother, is sick. 
in a, in a patriarchal culture, uh, the well-being of that older brother was connected with their own well-being, wasn't it? And so it meant a lot of things to them. The thought of possibly losing him could mean a lot of things. And so I want you to know where is it that they go? They go to Jesus, don't they? They go to him. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Now, this is really key. Right? This is really, really key. In the, in the Westminster Confession, it asks the question, what's the chief end of man and women? Man, humanity, okay? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we were created for God's glory. And in that, as we fulfill that which we're created for, we enter into a relationship in which there is this enjoyment, there is this fulfillment, there is forever. Now, look at this. This is really key to the whole passage. It's going to begin and end with this, basically. This sickness will not end in death, verse 4. No, it is for what? God's glory. So that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, all you have to do is go back two chapters to John chapter 9, 1 through 3. And Jesus is going to heal a man who's blind from birth. Okay? Can you go back? Can you go to that, flip forward to that passage, and then we'll go back to this one? I want you to see that one. It's the next one. John 9. There it is. As he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In the Jewish belief system, it was if a person was sick, then it was a result of somebody's sin. It was either his parents or his or her own fault, but there was a reason that they were sick. Look what Jesus answered. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So, Jesus is saying, hey, it, it isn't that his parents sinned, it isn't that he sinned. The reason he was born blind is that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, what's his ultimate purpose? What's your ultimate purpose? What's my ultimate purpose in life? To what? To glorify God. We were created by God for God. And unless we understand that, nothing else is going to make sense. Nothing else is going to make sense. All right, let's go back. There we go. So, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that God's Son might be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, uh, and, her sister and Lazarus. Stop there. Now, what would you expect? Jesus loved them. He cared about them. They went to him. It was their prayer. Oh, just go get Jesus. He's the one that could do something about this. Why? 
Because as you look all through John's gospel up to this point, you're going to see what are known as the seven signs. In fact, from John chapter 1, verse 19, all the way to John chapter 13, it's called the book of signs. There's seven of them. It starts with John 2, Jesus turning water to wine. Then John 3, healing uh, the paralytic. John 4, you see healing the official son. John 6, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water. John 9, the healing of the man blind from birth. And then now in John 11, the raising of Lazarus. Seven signs. It's interesting. Seven signs. And we're talking about the seven I am's of Jesus. Seven signs, seven I am's of Jesus, all designed to point to who Jesus is, his authority, right? All testify to the reality that he is the promised one, the Messiah, the Son of God, right? The one who's come into the world. And John wants to make that very clear. And so this is the seventh of the seven signs. But you would expect that Jesus is going to run right to Bethany, wouldn't you? Because he loves him so much. And you and I expect, if God, if you love me so much, when I come to you, when I pray to you, when I, when I have something I'm struggling with that really matters to me, when I'm hurting, you're going to answer right away. Right? You're going to respond right now. But what happens here? It's amazing. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. What? What? Do you know what you're doing, Jesus? Do you know that my brother could die? And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judah. Now, Jesus had had to flee away from the region of Jerusalem because the religious leaders were so angry at him. And he had so much popularity and acclaim that literally his life was at risk. And so when all this was happening, he was more than a day, about a day's travel away from Bethany. And he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judah. And of course, they're going to respond, well, what is wrong with you? Don't you know that people want to kill you there? And he says, yeah, yeah, I'm aware. I'm aware of that. But we're going to go. This is God's time. This is a time God has allowed for this. And so he goes, okay? Now, Let's look forward to 11.21. There we go. On his arrival, this is verse 17, then we'll get to 21. Jesus found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, this is, this is really going to be interesting, the four days. I'll tell you about that here in a little bit. But now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother, 
When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but stayed at, and Mary stayed at home. In the story of Martha and Mary in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, who's the person of action? Who's the person that initiates? Who's the person that just wants to do something? Martha. So in this instance, we're really seeing Martha kind of true to her character, isn't it? Like, okay, I'm going to do something about this. And she's going to be the first one to run to Jesus here. So verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's a a statement of faith. Obviously, she believes in him and that he had the power to heal her brother while he was living. But it also is an expression of profound disappointment. Jesus, if only you'd have showed up. Lord, if only you'd have answered my prayer. If only. Can you relate to that? Anybody here? It's so real. It's so gritty. It's so human. Verse 22. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. I want you to see something here. Martha, amidst her disappointment, right? Amidst the pain of her loss, still has what? Hope. Hope. Her brother's dead. He's in the grave. But there's still a sense of hope. And notice she doesn't say, but I know that even now God will give you whatever I want. She says, no, God will give you whatever you ask. So, so who is the source of her hope? Right? It's Jesus. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, I want you to look at verse 24. This is very interesting. Martha answered, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You know what that is? That's good theology. In her time of distress, she's falling back on what? Where is it written? And Jews of this time were divided. For example, the party of the Pharisees They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in angels. And the Sadducees didn't believe in any of that. 
Those were two Jewish sects. That's why they were sad, you see. Right? And historically, we see in Scripture, whether it be uh, with Abraham, when he is about to sacrifice Isaac at the altar in Hebrews chapter 11, 17 through 19, it says he was able to do this because he reasoned that even if he sacrificed his only son, that God could bring him back from the dead. Right? So, so we're already seeing this belief and this concept of resurrection. Then we go to Job 19, 25 through 27, where he basically says, you know, though my body's wasting away, my skin falls off my bones and it rots into the dust of the ground, yet I will see the glory of God. And, and, and there's a, there is a, a reference to a recreation of his, of his decaying and, 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 and dying flesh and, and that there's just this sense of resurrection that's going to happen. And Job. Uh, then we get into Ezekiel 37, 12 through 14. The valley of the, the dried bones, the dead bones, right? And of course, there, there's this illustration. It uses an illustration of resurrection of these bones. And, and then Daniel 12. Let's look at this passage. 1 through 2. This is talking about the great tribulation, the end times. This is Daniel. This is a prophecy. At this time, Michael, the great prince, will protect your people, will rise. Then there will be a time of distress such as not has happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But at this time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life others to shame and everlasting contempt. Right? So you can see resurrections. In, I mean, it's in the Old Testament. And then Jesus himself in John chapter 5. Let's look at the next verse. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. It's a great white throne judgment and the judgment seat of Christ. One is a judgment under reward, the other is a judgment under punishment. So, getting back to, if we can go back to the uh, verse 25. We go back to 25, the 21 through 25. I know I'm bouncing around. There we go, 24, perfect. So Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. All right, now here we go, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the I am. I am the resurrection and the life. He's not saying I am the one who can Raise your brother and bring him to life. What is he saying? No, I am the resurrection and the life. That gives me chills. That's our Jesus. 
Anyone who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Then he asks her the most important question that anyone can ever be asked or answered. Because eternity is a stake. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And it's the same question that Jesus is asking every single one of us here this morning. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Now, it's one thing to know good theology. Oh, yes, I believe that he'll be raised with the resurrection in the last day. That's good theology. That's where it's written. I can show it to you in the Bible. If that was adequate, then he wouldn't have asked her the question. Because it's one thing to know what Scripture says. It's another thing, what? To own it. To believe it. To stake your life and your eternity upon it. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. You see, remember when she said, even now I believe that God will do whatever you ask? That's hope. But this declaration of faith is her hope defined. It's her hope clarified. It's the ownership of her hope. It's gone from here to here, from here to here. Do you see that? That's what's going on here. Because in times of disappointment, in times of sorrow, in times of pain, in times when it seems like hope is slipping through our fingers, if we run to Jesus rather than the pseudo-counterfeit gods that the world offers us to numb our pain with, if we run to Jesus, He'll meet us there. And our hope is defined. And it's owned. And our faith has feet. And God is glorified. You see that? All right, let's go to verse 32. Now, I want you to see a difference here. Verse 32 now, Martha's going to go back. She's going to say, hey, I talked to Jesus. He wants to see you. So now we're going to see what happens with Mary. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, what did she do? She fell at his feet. She fell at his feet. She threw herself at him. Just like she had done where? Back in Luke 10, 38 through 42. Where was Mary? At the feet of Jesus. So she throws herself at him. She runs to him. She 
She fell at her feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you hear it? What do you hear here? There's a statement of faith and belief, but there's also what? If only, if only, Jesus, if only. But the point is, in that profound disappointment, whose feet did she throw herself at? Where did she go? She went to Jesus. (laughs) Now, this is very interesting. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. All right, are you ready for this? This is like nuance of the original language. In the original language, that that word deeply moved literally means he snorted like a horse. He snorted. And what it really is, it, it, it really is referring to like, like when a horse is snorting and is disturbed or, 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 or angry or, right? Think about that snorting horse. That, that, that's what this is saying. I mean, that's how he was moved. He was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then it says, Jesus wept. By the way, trivia fans, that's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. So, Commentators debate back and forth. Well, maybe he was, he was, um, he was angry, or he snorted because there was doubt on behalf of maybe some of the people. Maybe they weren't fully expecting that he was going to fulfill what he had said he would promise to do. And there's some of that, but the bulk of the commentators say that what he's really he's really responding to. Snorting is a whole idea of death and pain and the corruption that was brought into the world by sin and that, that death is humanity's greatest enemy and that it holds us captive and imprisonment and all of that, all that emotion and all of it. It's not the way it was supposed to be. This isn't it. Most say that's what this is all about. But then he's going to say, I'm going to show you what it is supposed to be. And not only what it's supposed to be, but what you have to look forward to. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. See how he loved him. But then some said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the attitudes of the Pharisees when Jesus hung on the cross. They said, look, he saved others. He can't even save himself. Kind of that attitude that they're expressing. Then in verse 38, 
Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Now, this is interesting. But, the, but Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Now, this gives us a clue. Why did he wait? Because in Jewish tradition and custom and belief, there were those among the Pharisees who believed that when a person died and they were placed in the tomb, their spirit literally came back and forth and visited them for three days. But on the fourth day, the spirit left completely and the person was void of any spirit, dead. Does that make sense? And so the waiting for the four days is, hey, you know what? There's no chance that anyone's going to say that he really hadn't died yet. Because even if you ascribe to what some of the religious leaders believed, it's four days. He's dead. Right? By the way, in the year 1873, archaeologists found a tomb outside of Bethany. And inscribed in the tomb read Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Interesting. This tomb. But Lord said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for he has been dead four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you if you believe you will see the glory of God. Now this puts a whole new spin on disappointment, doesn't it? Are you willing to be disappointed so that you can see God's glory? Are you willing to run for Him and throw yourself in His feet in the midst of your disappointment, your pain, your sorrow, seemingly hopelessness, so that you can fulfill the purpose for which you were created? To be an object of God's glory, to bring glory, and to experience His glory. Chapter 11 started that we're going to go and you're going to see the glory of God. Chapter 11 draws to a close as he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. You're going to see the glory of God. Here it is. And so as you read on, it says he took away the stone. Jesus prayed. He called Lazarus out of the grave. Lazarus came, wrapped in grave cloth. And the Lord said, take off the grave cloth and let him go. Jesus defeated humanity's greatest enemy, death. But you see, Lazarus is going to die. He was raised, but he died eventually, right? He did die. But this was the event that turned completely the religious leaders against Jesus. And from this point on, they plotted, the Sadducees plotted to kill him. They said, he has to die. And as you get into chapter 13 and beyond, that's called the book of glory, Jesus' final week of Jesus' life, his arrest, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection. 
where Jesus is resurrected. Death is defeated once and for all. Jesus defeats it. And as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, that that which was in that which was perishable was raised what? Imperishable. That death is defeated. That Jesus has conquered death. And that we have to. Wow. It's amazing. It is amazing. That's God's promise for you and for me. And Jesus went before us to show us. I love what Peter writes in 1 Peter 3. I'll read this to you. I want to close with this. Praise be to the God, excuse me, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us what? New birth into a living, into a resurrected hope. <laughs> Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, now listen to this. This is for you and for me. And into an inheritance that can never, what, perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. Okay? Continue. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Let me add disappointments. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise and what? What? Glory. What is the chief end of you and me? What were we created for? To do what? To bring glory to God. Result in praise and glory and honored when Jesus Christ is revealed. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. Amen. And amen.